Hello, welcome to Cannabis Marketing Live. I am your host, Jake Litke of Media Gel, and today we have David Palaszczuk, which I've been told I've got his name right the first time, so I'm excited about that. Uh, David has literally written the book on cannabis branding. Um, David, can you give us just a quick introduction about yourself and how you found yourself in this fascinating and difficult industry that we're in? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, first off, thank you for having me and, and for pronouncing my name correctly. I really appreciate that. That doesn't happen too often. And uh, growing up with a name that ends in UCK has not been the easiest uh, thing at times. But so I appreciate the love, Jake. Um, but um, well, I'll start off by saying I'm, I'm in the cannabis industry now for 12 years, going on almost 13 years. Um, prior to that, uh, I had uh, studied product and industrial design at Parsons School of Design, um, owned an art and design gallery for many years, then went back to school for my MBA and uh, ended up at um, American Express MasterCard, then working um, for Pepsi into Microsoft. And, uh, and then in 2011, 2012, when the I-502 law passed in Washington, the same time as uh, the law passed in Colorado, um, uh, there was adult use recreational cannabis. And that's when a number of my friends left Microsoft and Starbucks and Amazon to, uh, to get into the space. And, uh, and that's when I realized that um, there were skills missing in the industry, skills that I had. And just because I was around cannabis for much of my life, I was, uh, you know, a, a former pro skater many years ago. And, uh, you know, again, owning an art and design gallery, I've just been around the cannabis lifestyle. So understanding that, but also understanding business, uh, I was able to bridge many gaps that that people needed in the industry. And so uh, 12 years later, um, you know, here I am after working at um, Dope Magazine for four of those years, and, and then working at um, as a consultant for many years, and uh, as the chief brand officer at Washington's uh, number one processor, uh, creating many brands. So it's it's been a minute, a long minute, but uh, especially uh, years are like dog years or more in this industry. So, yeah, um, I find myself at a really you know special spot at a special time, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. All right. So there's a lot of things you just said that I want to dig into, but I want to start with the pro skater thing for a minute. Um, I have learned as an adult, I have a, I bought my daughter like a skateboard for Christmas last year. I like, we built skateboards together. Um, and I thought I could skate again, like I did in junior high. And it turns out I can't, um, do you get on a skateboard anymore? I, I certainly shouldn't. I do. Um, yes, I do. And my my son, he's 13 and I've never pushed him to skate at all, but he's found his way to skating. So um, so I skate with him, uh, although when he skates with his friends, I try not to show up at the skateboard park and skate. But um, yeah, I don't look it. And I think everybody's a little surprised when, you know, I pull out my board and they're like, oh, this guy's about to kill himself. And and then they see I can actually still carve around a bowl and, um, you know, and and have fun. That's great. Um, uh, that's very impressive. So uh, congrats on that. Um, you mentioned a bunch of big companies that you've worked at. Um, Microsoft is obviously not a challenger brand, but one might, I mean, Pepsi and MasterCard in many ways are challenger brands. And I'm just going to jump right into that, which maybe not everyone is aware of the distinction between, you know, 
what a challenger brand is. So let's talk about challenger brands because I think that the whole cannabis industry is a challenger brand. Like no matter where you're at, there's no real dominant brand in the US today. There's not a household name. If you went on the street in New York, in San Francisco, in Austin, and asked someone to name three cannabis brands, they likely would not be able to name three or they would name three different ones, right? So we are in a, there's a kind of a white space here, right? No one has really claimed it. Maybe cookies is is getting close and maybe some of the MSOs from a retail perspective. But I, I would say that working at companies like Pepsi and MasterCard give you a pretty good perspective. What is your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's really interesting. So just talking about that for a moment. So uh, in in weird ways, I feel like I've spent my career working at number two brands, right? You know, um, and in some ways it's easier to work at a number two brand because the, the the number one brand, one, there's only one place to go from number one, but but also, you know, it's a lot of bushwhacking, if you will. It's a lot of trailblazing. Um, so it's easier to come in as the second person with, you know, using less energy to still, you know, uh, drift uh, number one. But, um, you know, I think, I think I've, I've taken a lot of time to try to figure out, you know, the, the 11 years that I've spent in, in just the credit card industry at American Express and MasterCard and, you know, working on the don't leave home without it campaign or working on the priceless campaign that's priceless most people always think i say price list so the priceless campaign um you know that was amazing and i've often thought about like what what can i learn from what i did you know and and how they develop those those brands and and those taglines and those campaigns you know and, and the and and now relative and then Jumping off of that, I got back in because because of my pro skating experience and my MBA. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to to work at the other companies that we spoke about and to work at Microsoft when they were launching Zoom as the director of brand partnerships, and then to go work at Xbox and um, um, and to see the evolution of technology too. You know, it was months after that Microsoft released Zoom, their MP3 player, that the competing with the iPod that the iPhone was introduced, right? And then it was a whole different game. And then Microsoft went and acquired Nokia, you know, to get into the phone game. So, you know, technology was crazy at that point. That was 2006, 2007, not too long ago. Um, but coming full circle, what I learned, you know, and what I take into the cannabis industry now is trust marketing, right? Don't leave home without it, priceless. You can count on us. Anytime you're going to use your credit card, it's going to work. Um, you know, those types of, of either safety or security, um, I think that type of marketing, which I now call trust marketing, totally falls back into um, cannabis. And then further, when I was working on Mountain Dew, and again, into Zune as director of brand partnerships, and then uh, Xbox, that's all lifestyle marketing. Right. So if you can take <clears throat> credit card marketing and lifestyle marketing, trust my marketing and lifestyle marketing and pull them in, pull them together, it's cannabis marketing. It's understanding the culture. It's understanding your consumers. I mean, understanding your consumers is is a basic, but understanding the gaming culture, understanding the skate culture, understanding the cannabis culture, 
it's it's you know either you're an insider or an outsider um those are things that are really important those are things that build trust trust leads back to what we're talking about here you know psychology um let me share one thing where my my personal worlds collided um and i think it's a really relevant um little story here which is um right before the pandemic i think it was 2019, I want to say, I went to Spanibus um, in Barcelona. And, um, and I was walking through Barcelona, and I looked up at a Mountain Dew billboard. And there was a group of kids on the billboard holding skateboards. And one skateboard was more prominent. And I looked at the board, and I just thought, wow, something, something's wrong. And I looked at the trucks on the board. The trucks are what mounts the wheels to the deck. And they were backwards. And I was like, oh my God, like, that's crazy. You know, when you think about it, any skater is going to realize that. And then they're going to realize this isn't, this is incredible. This is staged. This is contrived. This is yeah. not true to who we are. And because I had been a, a brand manager with Mountain Dew, I was just, uh, you know, and in Spain year, you know, 10, 15 years later uh, for Spanibus, looking at this billboard, it just blew me away that, such a minor detail could be, um, you know, such a disconnect. And so it's really important to understand the culture and to understand, you know, what those nuances are that can actually really either engage a community or totally off-put a community um, because they realize you're, you're not true, you're not real, uh, you're not of us, of them. Yeah, yeah important. Yeah, brand. Uh, you know, we do we do a lot of marketing in the cannabis industry. That's that's our business, um, and it's more often than not that when we start working with a new advertiser, they don't really have a brand identity in the sense of you know they have a logo, they have a name, but if you ask them some you know some might call it old school, but like just brand archetypes, like what is your brand archetype? Who are you? What is your story? I know that the industry is very, very difficult to operate in. Just, just to run a business, there's so many things that are more difficult within the cannabis space than outside of the cannabis space. And so a lot of our advertisers are really just focused on, you know, trying to make payroll and pay rent and keep the lights on. Um, and so many of them, when, when we start talking to them about advertising, you know, we start with a conversation, who is your audience? And usually people say everyone, right? Well, it really can't be everyone. I mean, maybe you want everyone to be your customer, but marketing ultimately is about telling a story, right? Human beings resonate with stories and a story needs to be told from an archetype. You have to have a personality and the personality is not just cannabis. Um, you mentioned trust marketing. I'd like to dive in a little bit into brand archetypes. Um, it's There's the classic, you know, Jungian archetypes, you know, the hero, the explorer, the caretaker, um, how do you layer trust in with someone who like, for example, has an outlaw brand, right? Because those two things may, there is a way to put them together, but it's not necessarily obvious how you are an outlaw brand archetype and how you're going to create trust. Well, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, so when I think of outlaw um, and outlaw, so first of all, let's back up. Yeah, yeah sorry. Let's, yeah. Um, what's really interesting is, and often gets confused, is there are brand archetypes and consumer 
archetypes or personas, right? So, so one is who's consuming, and then one is what this stands for. It's more, it's more of an object. Um, but even within outlaw brands, you know, there's um, there's a number of different brands. You know, there's the um, there's uh, God. I, I could say there's just a straight up outlaw. You, you know, the the rebel. Um, Harley Davidson is usually, if you look at brand archetype and outlaw, that's that's the one everyone goes to first, right? right? Harley right, Davidson, right? But you know, then there's other things. You know, there's um, dare I say there's there's the Robin Hood, right? You, you know, like stealing from the rich, giving to the poor. There's the Avenger. Uh, there's so many different types and different types of nuances. You know that there's the protector. You know, there's all these different sort of outlaw um, scenarios, if you will. But um, but I think people respond to it because, you know, um, uh, I think everybody has uh, a rebel inside them. You know, I think one of the one of the really, you know, the newer brands, I mean, it's probably not that new anymore, Obey. I love I love the Obey brand, you know, just because it's, um, you know, there's a great documentary on that brand where, um, you know, when you tell people to obey, that's when they resist. But the truth is, most people are obeying all the time, everywhere, you, you, you know, so, um, but once they become conscious of it, that's when they want to resist it. So it's, it's really interesting. And then when you, when you think about cannabis brands, just in general, um, it's funny, one of the, one of the brand archetypes that I talk about is a counterculture brand. Well, I mean, you could actually say that, even though there might be a health and wellness archetype, just because it is a cannabis brand, it is a counterculture brand. Um, and just to even, you know, before we even jump into brand archetypes, we should explain what a brand archetype is for a moment. Um, you know, on many levels, I, I think of as a brand archetype as a shortcut. You know, a brand archetype is cues, and those cues are everything from uh, you know, the, the, the form factor that the brand comes in all the way to the wrapping, you know, if the wrapping happens to be craft paper and, and printed in soy ink, you could probably read into it that there's a sustainable um, aspect to the brand, which attracts your attention or not, um, you know, but, but you understand that that is a green or sustainable product or a health and wellness product is sort of, um, you know, built a little differently or a, a counterculture brand, uh, maybe with bright colors or, or a name like Elevated, for example. Um, so, so these are the cues that either attract us or repel us. Um, and we're pretty able to quickly understand what these brands are about, what their backstories are about. They either catch our attention or, or again, or not. Um, and again, this is even, you know, real value um, or perceived value, you know, they just might be riffing on something that, that you happen to, to dig. So um, it's interesting, but that's what brand archetypes are. Um, and over the course of, I guess now 12, 13 years, I've noticed that <clears throat> there are 14 cannabis brand archetypes. And let me even uh, just preface, preface by saying, I've noticed there's 14. Now I've noticed there's one more, which has sort of popped up. I'm not here to say there's this many brand archetypes in cannabis. What I am here to say is I've noticed these. They're not mutually exclusive. They definitely overlap onto each other. And I'll give you some examples of that. And I would urge other people to start to 
call out other brand archetypes as they develop, and they should, just as we as people in, in cannabis as an industry develop. But one quick example, um, uh, there's a brand or was a brand called Whoopi and Maya, Whoopi from Whoopi and Goldberg, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, um, uh, she had a partner named Maya. They were creating women's specific um, products formulated out of, from cannabinoids uh, and there was a charity component. So when you really break that brand down, there was a celebrity component, there was a gender-based component, there was a cause or charity-based component and therefore stacked up, um, you know, you could see, that's just one example of how these things layer up. But, but, um, but to understand that there are brand archetypes which appeal to customer personas is really what we're trying to, trying to get at here. Yeah, so what are the 14 brand archetypes that you've, 14 and a half, or is it 15? Is, is there an official 15 or is it like the, like Pluto, maybe it's a planet, maybe it's not? <laughs> I love that, yes. Maybe. <laughs> Um, all right, well, I'll read through them. Um, you know, the cultivator brand, the gender brand, the foodie brand, health and wellness, counterculture, prohibition, nostalgic, charity or cause, luxury, value, <clears throat> art and design, regional, novelty, celebrity, and the 15th being spiritual. And, you know, I could give you examples for, for any of those, um, mm -hmm. but um, <clears throat> And especially the value brands, which came out during the pandemic, a lot of brands, um, you know, whether whether it be um, uh, Old Pal might be, Old a, Pal, right? Old Pal or you know, Bakers might be a good example. You know, where where they came in, uh, you know, maybe Shake instead of Buds in larger quantities. Um, you know, those sorts of things, and we started to see them at certain times. So, I believe over time there'll be more brand archetypes, but. Um, but to understand that these things even exist, help us as either brand owners or brand developers, or even consumers, quite frankly, you know, to more consciously understand what we're choosing and why we're choosing. And, you know, to me, what you described with those 14 archetypes, at least to me, sounds a little bit more like the, the, who the consumer identifies with rather than what you would see in a traditional brand archetype exercise, right? Where you have someone like the magician or the explorer, which are a little, you know, esoteric in some ways. Um, have you found that when you're working inside of what is a nascent industry, that it's easier to break down those archetypes into more accessible, uh, like nomenclature that you, that you have? Yeah, well, okay. So at its most simplest terms, I, I, I'll give this visual, um, concentric circles, um, at the core, uh, I always talk about the can of core, then there's the can of comfortable, the next outer ring, then there's the can of casual, then the next outer ring is the can of confused, then the can of neutral, and then the can of contra. And so to me, if you think about that as, you know, concentric circles, um, I often talk about I'll, I'll use this really quickly, the pool analogy. So if I have my friends and family around a pool, I have to speak to them totally differently. And I don't like this expression, but you know, meet, meet them where they are, meet the consumer where, where they are, right? Mm -hmm. So if I have somebody, my friends and family um, are around a pool and you know, somebody says, 
oh, the, the water's too cold. You know, I'll say, hey, um, go to the shallow end, it's warmer there, or go to the sunny side of the pool, it's warmer there. Here's a wetsuit, by the way. You know, or someone says, oh, it's too shallow to dive in. Hey, go to the end of the pool, the deep side. You know, we've got a diving board, right? And whatever it is, um, you know, all the way through to, you know, my cousin who just ate lunch, you know, and he has to wait a half hour before he goes into the pool. There's always a solution for these people, whether it's a wetsuit, a life preserver, or go to the deeper end of the pool. But you're talking to different people in different, you know, different needs, different desires, you know, around this pool or containing, relating to the pool. And I think it's a great analogy because it really comes down to like, how do we speak to people? How do we, you know, based on their level of education relative to cannabis, are they in the core? And if they're in the core, we're talking totally, totally different than, you know, most other things, right? We're talking probably deep into terpenes or other things, whereas, you know, the canon neutral or the canon confused don't even know what a terpene is. So maybe to speak to them about terpenes, using aromatherapy as a model, you know, like, hey, this, uh, this uplifts you and invigorates you, you know, it's citrus. Well, side note, so, so does limonene, or this one relaxes you, uh, it's lavender. Oh, by the way, did you know linalool and lavender, they're connected, you know? So it just depends on who you're talking to and how you're talking to them. But um, so it's that model that I try to use instead of the typical brand, um, or not brand, the typical pers uh, consumer personas that are often sort of called out or, or, you know, or the heroes that attract the consumers, if you will, I guess it's just, you know, kind of flipped around in terms of the way we're talking about it. But yeah, I try to, I try to figure out how engaged they are with, engaged they are with cannabis and how open they are to, uh, you know, to maybe getting into the weeds. And if they're not, I'll give them the elevator pitch. But um, yeah, it's, it's meeting them where they are um, and offering them products and form factors that align with their, their need states and, and their consumption rituals. My, my favorite thing about the metaphor that you used about the swimming pool, even though you said you didn't like it, is you mentioned your uncle that needs to wait half an hour to get into the pool, which is not actually a thing, it turns out. They told us that when we were a kid, you were not supposed to go in the pool right after you eat. Not true, right? And there's a lot of that in cannabis, right? Uh, just misinformation that is ingrained that people have that they grew up their whole life with, especially someone who's like a Gen X or, or a boomer, right? Like the information that was given through the majority of those lifetimes is largely incorrect, right? Absolutely. And by the way, if you ate a tuna fish sandwich for lunch, you could get into the pool 10 minutes earlier because the fish swam in a previous life. So Perfect. Yes, it's uh, it's aromatherapy. We, we go back to that. That's right. Um, so um, you mentioned let's let's talk a little bit about your book. You wrote a book. That's impressive. I, I have heard it's a difficult endeavor. I have not embarked on it myself. I think everyone at some point thinks they want to write a book about something, but uh, you've done it. Uh, how long did it take you from, you know, Hello World or the prologue or however you started to a, 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 a book? Wow. It took me five years. Um, and, <clears throat> and that was really painful, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the first advice I give is um, to people is don't write a book. Um, 
I guess second advice is if 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 you're going to write a book, make sure it's a, a spy novel or a spy thriller or a romance novel, because those, those are the only books that make money. Um, and then just the third quick one, if you really have to write a book, don't tell anybody you're writing a book because it will take you really long and uh, they'll probably start smirking at you and say, how's your book going? Um, but, you know, in the cannabis space, writing about cannabis brands or, or rather writing about cannabis brands while laws are changing constantly, you know, that means packaging is changing constantly. Brands, quite frankly, are going in and out of business. If they are lucky enough to stay around, they've rebranded and changed or they've merged with other brands. So, um, so that took quite some time, you know, just getting it right in, in terms of cannabis history and, and brand evolution um, and trying to merge branding um, and cannabis talk and trying to bridge that gap was, was you know, really quite difficult um, and took quite some time. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I would say this, um, while I am actually writing a second and third book right now, which- oh, So you're a masochist. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing I would still say is, I don't know how to write a book. What I do know is how not to write a book, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, so, so that said, um, you know, the book was launched um, in, in 2021 during, during the pandemic um, on Amazon. The book went on to be for nine months a best-selling book in two categories on Amazon, um, which was green business and branding and logo design. Um, again, I don't think it says so much about the book as it says the interest in cannabis and the need and desire for real knowledge, um, real branding knowledge, real product development knowledge, um, a book that you know, starts off with history and, and brings us to the modern world. It talks about why cannabis stereotypes took place and just sort of level sets and then gets into the development of brands, both from a branding perspective and, hey, in the cannabis space, there are cultivators, there are farmers, you know, they had their product and that's what was available, you know, and, and so that's sort of where it all started. And then you saw over time that whether it was the farmer said, hey, you know what, we don't know how to market and brand our product, we just know how to cultivate and other people came in and helped them or, the farmers got a little more savvier, the cultivators got more savvy and said, hey, I need to step my game up. Um, and then there were real brands, brands that mimicked, if you will, um, you know, uh, CPG brands. So, uh, or, or totally mimicked in other ways, made fun of, you know, CPG brands. So, um, and that's why we have all the trademark, trademark lawsuits and infringements taking place, uh, you know, today. So it's really interesting to see the development of the brands, how they developed, how they developed, where they developed, and how you see their um, their halo effect and, and their influence taking place in the new markets that are opening up right now. Yeah, and so. Let's talk about the brands. As I mentioned, I don't think there's any dominant brand yet. Um, I think, you know, within five years, there will be household brands of cannabis. And I think some will be 
organic brands they're endemic that like cross the chasm and become an household, a household brand. Some of them will just be brute force CPG companies that come in and can spend a hundred million dollars building the brand. Um, but even today you still see, you, you said you're originally from New York, right? So I was in Manhattan recently and you know, they have, it's complete chaos. Um, the, now they've got some stores that are actually legally open, but if you walk around Manhattan, there's storefronts and buses that are just, you know, completely, uh, they're just there. Right. Um, there's even just, you know, the guy with the TV tray on the corner of eighth Avenue with some products on his TV tray. Right. Um, and those products are actually branded, but it's not real we already have this like sort of knockoff situation going on where you have, I mentioned cookies, it, it could be Stizzy, it could be, you know, any number of California brands. You see people on the street selling products. There's there's a pretty brisk business of in New York of just knockoff cannabis packaging. People that all they do is make packaging that looks like a real brand and they sell it to people that are putting up their, you know, driving around on buses or whatever. Um, I mean, that's a that's a thing that I think all brands have dealt with to a certain extent. You know, you have knockoff watches, sneakers, but in cannabis, I think it's it's easier than in other things like making a fake Rolex requires a little more effort than just taking someone's brand and putting it on a bag and put it on the shelf. Mm -hmm. When you work with companies and you talk about branding, is that like a big concern or how, how are people dealing with that? Wow, that's that's a a lot what you just said, and and I totally agree with you, um, man. There's so so many things that you just brought up. Um, so let's unpack that for a minute. Yeah. Um, I want to say uh, a year and a half ago, probably maybe a year ago, when a year and a half ago, when uh, everything opened up from from the pandemic, and I went back to New York. I spent a lot of time going to uh, the speakeasies, if you will, for lack of a better way of calling them. And I was blown away. I spent a week in New York where I was out till three o'clock in the morning every night. Um, I had not had, you know, uh, as Woody Allen would say, a madcap Manhattan weekend um, like that since the 80s when I owned an art gallery. Um, what was happening at these speakeasies was just amazing. And so, um, and what I should also say is what was happening, and, and I'll get to that in a moment, which you alluded to as well. So I went around to all these different, uh, different speakeasies. And when I walked in, what I expected to see, and again, being a New Yorker, um, being a skateboarder, growing up, you know, during rap, um, I, I don't want to call it hip hop because it wasn't back then. Um, what there was, was clearly a new, an East Coast and West Coast thing. And so everybody has been in this lead up over the last couple of years has been talking about East Coast brands and West Coast brands. And when are the New York brands going to, you know, start popping up? So my friend that owned, a, my three friends that owned a skateboard company called uh, Zoo York, you know, they were talking about maybe bringing, bringing back the name into cannabis. There were other brands that, uh, you know, whether they were lifestyle brands or clothing brands that were thinking of coming now into the cannabis space. So I thought, okay, this makes sense. These are going to be the, the brands that sort of come up, you know, from the streets of New York. 
So I go into these speakeasies when I roll into town. And um, what do I see? I see California brands. I'm like, oh my God, wait a second. So this is intriguing to me because here we are in New York and I'm thinking in the New York underground, there would be New York brands, but sure, there were a few, but what there really were, were California brands and well-known California brands. So I said to my friend who at the time owned one of these spots, um, I said, okay, so are the California brands selling it through the back door or are people on the East Coast smart enough to look on Alibaba where you could find cookies, Mylar bags made and everything else just right there because the Chinese companies that make those products are actually showing customers what they make. And it just happens to be cookies and, and other brands. Um, so have people just gotten wise enough to basically go get those Mylar bags? Hey, I'll take a thousand of those or 10,000 of those they order. And then they're filling it with flour from Oklahoma and there they are selling. So the answer to that was all of the above, right? You, you know, this is all happening, um, you know, because the California market is so terrible, you, you know, people are not necessarily probably following the laws and because there's entrepreneurs that are doing things they probably shouldn't do either, um, you know, and uh, so this is the, the gray market in New York and the MSOs who have paid for licenses and have been granted licenses in some cases and are waiting to get the rules and the regs from the city, they're sitting by the sidelines, you know, but obeying the rules while the gray market is thriving. And, and you know, again, not only speakeasies, but, you know, wrapped buses in Times Square that are selling infused product and so on and so forth or driving around like, like ice cream trucks, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a crackdown recently in New York. Um, you know, the majority of these places were closed, or maybe not the majority, but the, the better known ones were closed. Um, and now they're trying to come down, they're trying to open up as fast as they can the dispensaries. But unfortunately, they've taken so long that many of the dispensaries that were also given licenses and found spaces and were paying rent for, for X amount of time um, ran out of capital. And so they had to give up those locations. So now they're getting these pop-up shops for a few months just to open up, just to get some traction. But, you know, quite frankly, the, the government in New York, you know, needs to, to get moving and get cracking so the people that are licensed can get traction and, and create brands and sell local brands and, and really bring New York into New York brands into the New York cannabis industry. Yeah. What are, um, because I am on the West Coast, um, I do spend a fair amount of time in Manhattan, but are there, what are, what are some New York brands that are, that, that we see emerging? Oh man, that's, that's a, a great question. Um, you know, believe it or not, nothing comes to mind. I mean, I know there are brands. That's and the I, question I said, right? Like ask someone in New York to name three brands. Right. You know, so, I mean, and it's funny because the first one that comes to, to mind is High and Y. High and Y is really an events company, you know, that throws brand uh, that throws cannabis related parties. There's um, on the Revel uh, again another sort of event event party, but um, but um, you know they're they're more they're more bringing the community 
community together. You know, there's seven seas, um, but they're really, I mean, when you really think about it, there's only three dispensaries right now. Um, so, uh, you know, two of them are pop-up shops. So, so really the brands that I could, I could throw out there, you, you know, it's um, House of Puff, again, um, again, an accessories company, you know, they're all, um, they're all, they're all like, not necessarily flower brands or cannabis brands. They're all brands that sort of relate around it and bring the community together. I think it's still developing. Although I, I know, I know for sure some of my friends are going to say, "What are you talking about? How could you forget my brand?" And you know, out of, of course, people. yes. Well, we, I, I get in trouble frequently for not mentioning, uh, you know, friends, companies, and, and brands right. uh, on these types of conversations. So, sorry, tell you on that. All right, so you have um, you have your book out. You, you uh, people bought it. You 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 got you know bestseller in some categories. Um, does that translate into into business for you? And that's actually a question I have, which is, other than writing books, you have a do you help people with their brands? Do you have a consulting service? What is it? How, how do you apply the knowledge that you have? Yeah. Um, so yes, the answer is is yes. Um, now that the book is out, and and quite frankly, before the book, um, you know, primarily what I do is I develop brands and I develop product um, products, and you know, I focus on um, on can on the cannabis space. Um, you know, I've developed some of the best selling. Um, cannabis brands in Washington state and have licensed them to numerous other states. In the real world, I'm a certified licensing specialist and have lots of experience licensing, brand licensing. Um, so I've been able to take that knowledge and uh, grow brands out of one state into another. Um, I've also uh, introduced American brands uh, into Europe uh, at Spanibus right before the uh, right before the pandemic, and then into uh, into Chile and to South America. So, um, so the answer is yes. Uh, I do consult and um, and uh, help brands better understand who their consumers are and and better develop brands that and uh, brands and products that um, you know can make a difference in in their consumers' lives. And so when you're working with, um, I'm going to make some assumptions here that you work with companies that are at different stages of their brand development. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk to someone who's in the very early stage, like they're like, I want to get into the cannabis business. I'm going to build a brand. What is, that's, that's probably a good place to start because you can, you can help people avoid some, you know, common mistakes. If you have someone that's like, you know, right off the boat wants to start a cannabis brand what is your like you know top five or top 10 do's and don'ts like these are some like pillars of where to start and what not to do yeah well you know i always joke that um cannabis brands are like dad jokes you know like someone just has an idea and thinks it's really funny or it's really great and then they go off and and they create the brand and again that might have worked you, you know not too long ago um, you know, many cultivators still to this day, it's really amazing. And, and I'll answer your questions quickly, but let me just sidetrack here for a minute. So many, uh, many cultivators will say to me today, you know, like, yeah, it's great. You wrote a book on branding, but cannabis doesn't need brands. Cannabis sells itself. And I say to them, you know what? That was true. It's not anymore. 
you know, back in the day when your dealer showed up or you found somebody with weed that would sell it to you, it was, you took whatever you could get. <clears throat> then if you got lucky, it was either the brown or the green stuff, you know, and then over time things developed. But we live in a world today, and again, I live in Washington State. I've, you know, I've been to all the states where it's legal, so I am overly jaded. So forgive me if there are folks that live in states where cannabis is not readily available, but it will be, you know, be patient. And when it is, you will see that over time, when you can walk into a store or walk into multiple stores, you know, or, or drive-throughs for that matter, or pick up, you, you know, pick up and delivery right on at curbside. Um, and there's so much choice. That's when brands become important. That's when brands speak to you. Yes, of course, the quality of the product is always first and foremost. Maybe packaging or a brand name will get you the first time and not get you the second time because the quality or the experience wasn't what you were thinking it would be. But once you get above a certain quality threshold brand and you have choice, um, you know, it really comes down to supply and demand. It's really basic. It's basic business. Um, when, when I can go to 10 stores, you know, within two miles of my home and get, you know, over a thousand brands, um, branding's important. So that said, you know, let me come back to your question, um, which is kind of, you, you know, what are the shortcuts or what are the things that people should uh, kind of be mindful of? Um, the first thing is, I would say, know who your customer is. You know, if you don't know who your customer is, or if you don't know the solution you're, you know, the, the problem you're solving or solution you're offering, then I think you might uh, be in a tough spot. I also think you should be different and different for a better reason, not different to be different, because um, different to be different is dangerous. So, you know, people always want to see something that's similar but different, but it's got to be better um, or unique. Um, or at least perceived as better or unique. Um, you know, uh, truth, when truth battles perception, perception most often prevails. So it's important to understand, you know, reality versus uh, perception. But um, I, th I think it really comes down to just basic things like if you know who your consumer is and how do you know who your consumer is, you could start off with <clears throat> what are their need states? You know, what, what are their um, consumption rituals? What are their habits? You know, can they, can they consume discreetly or non-discreetly? You know, that comes down to, um, that automatically drives the form factors, right? If it's non-discreet or if they're allowed to be non-discreet, then they could smoke and smell like weed. If they have to be discreet, then, you know, now we're talking about um, edibles, we're talking about beverages, we're talking about um, vapes, we're talking about sublingual slips and transdermal patches. So, um, those are things which are really important. Once we know that, then we can talk about dosing. Once we get through the, you know, the form factor and the dosing, then we could talk about, okay, who is this appealing to and what package should it go into? What color should we use? What fonts should we use? Um, is it sustainable, you know, uh, packaging? Is it uh, recyclable? Uh, you know, all of those things. Is it foiled? Is it big? Is it black? You, you know, who, who are we talking to? Um, and, and it's those things that are never really thought of, you know, uh, when starting a cannabis brand or a cannabis product, it's like, hey, let's get into the weed industry. Um, and it's not well thought out. So I'll give you one quick example. 
<clears throat> Evergreen Herbal, one of the largest uh, processors here in Washington State, many, many years ago, was basically in the edibles business. They wanted to get into the beverages, uh, cannabis-infused beverages business as well. They didn't really fully, and they were taking over a, a facility which had three bottling lines, but they didn't really know where to get started. They knew they could make beverages, but what beverage to make? Well, I came in, I helped them. We worked to figure out what was Washington State all about? You know, who were the people in Washington State? Was there anything that was unique to Washington State that would allow us to sort of get a better grasp on that? What we realized really quickly was, or what I realized, the New Yorker now in Washington State was, there's a bifurcation in Washington State. It's the mountains. There's Eastern Washington, which is either, a re which I thought was Republican and anti-cannabis, and then Western Washington State <clears throat> along the coast, Seattle and down the coast of Portland, where it's very liberal. Well, what was interesting is in looking at uh, the makeup of Washington State, we realized there was a very high um, population of um, veterans in Eastern Washington suffering from PTSD, not happy with uh, using their opiates. And so we did some research on that. We went out to, um, uh, you know, a lodge in Spokane, Washington, and met with the uh, the veterans. And basically, what we realized was one, they weren't as Republican as we thought. They were more libertarian. They were more, you know, government hands off. So cannabis was okay with them, but they didn't want to smoke cannabis. They didn't want to smell like cannabis. But they were open to some other form factor, basically replacing their opiates. We developed a brand, a beverage. We call that beverage Blaze American Cola. We The color palette was red, white, and blue. The tagline was the cola patriots prefer. We launched it on the 4th of July, um, you know, and we, we came up with the, the cola flavor profile because it's an American flavor. And in working with them and having focus groups and giving them flavor tastes and bringing them packaging and showing these products to them. We created um, within two months, it was the number one beverage uh, in Eastern Washington and then a couple of months later in Washington state. And this was a number of years ago, but we were able to target an audience, understand where they lived, understand how to connect with them, both at the local level and at the dispensary level, you know, uh, in developing the product and then in selling the product and doing it in a way that they totally related to. And so that's the sort of thing that I would recommend, excuse me, that I would recommend to new cannabis brand owners or cannabis brand owners in the space that are seeking to better connect with their community um, in, in ways that make um, more sense than just being another cannabis brand. That was a lot. <clears throat> that was a lot. Thank you for that. Um... That, that's also very impressive. And and I think that that's something that people really need to do. And I don't think it happens very often, which is going and talking to the consumer, giving them examples of what you're trying to do and getting their feedback rather than, you know, there is a mentality that, okay, I'm going to, I grew some weed and people want it, right? I'm going to put it on the shelf. It's going to sell. Um, and, you know, this happens pretty frequently when we talk to someone, the marketing campaign, like, well, what's your, what is your product hook? Like, what do you, and they're like, well, it's 30% THC. Okay. Well, that's, that's a fact. That's not a story and it's not a brand. Right. Um, and you don't want to, 
you never want to compete on numbers, right? Because numbers, there's a, that's that's a someone can beat you at numbers, right? But if you have a story that is authentic that you've created, that is something that you own, right? Um, and it can't just be taken away from you. Absolutely, yeah. I'd rather compete. I think on. I don't know if I should. Say, I don't know if I should say. I'd rather compete on emotion than on numbers. Um, you, you know, and I think brands have have evolved that way. Um, I don't know. There, there's a good slide uh, that. Oh yes. Maybe now's a good time to. I think I have. Yeah, we should bring that up. Um, yeah, and that and that was really about you know over time how people connect with brands. Um, you, you know, and and over the decades we we've seen that brands are just. Um, are are different uh, and people connect with them. Yeah, here it is. Um, you know, like post-war, if you think about the 19, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, it was really about convenience and efficiency. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but think uh, sliced bread, sliced cheese, um, you know, one minute, you know, oatmeal, you know, and, and all the things, instant coffee. Um, it's pretty terrible when you go down the list, when you really think about, um, all the things that were created, you know, but, but again, really about convenience and efficiency, the modernization of, of our society. Um, and even though that started early on, it was really, I guess, you know, the beginning of, uh, convenience. Um, and then, you know, as we got into the seventies and eighties, it was really about how the product made us feel. So, you know, think 1940s, 50s, 60s, miles per gallon, maybe. And then 1970s and 80s were more like miles per hour. You, you know, like it was less about the efficiency. It was more about, whoa, this thing makes me feel great about the wind blowing through my hair as I drive this car. Um, and that, you know, essentially kind of morphed into, you know, 1990s through 2010s or, you know, somewhere around there how the product positioned us socially. And that was not only, um, you know, economically, you know, which I mean, most of it was, but it was also, you know, brands that, um, you know, it was, it was I, I want to call them gangs, you know, or like, you know, uh, apparel ghettos, you know, where, where people, and when I use the term ghetto, I, I, it can mean upscale or downscale, but the idea of wearing skins, if you will, to either, be part of a crowd or to, uh, you, you know, be exclude yourself from, from a crowd as well. Um, and then finally, we're, we're, we've kind of gotten into this new phase, you know, um, and I think in, in, you know, 2010s through the, through the pandemic and into now, you know, I think about brands like Patagonia. Um, I think about brands like Tesla um, and Tesla is both, you know, I guess a luxury brand these days, but it's also, you know, why people, or, or like a Toyota uh, Prius, you know, where, where people are really putting their money into what they believe, um, you know, or seventh generation, if it comes to, let's say, laundry uh, products or, or cleaning products. But, but now it's more about how the product reflects our beliefs, um, you know, as opposed to um, some of the other things that really took place earlier and uh, earlier in, in, you know, over the course of, I guess, let's say 50 years, um, but, uh, or, or dare I say 70 years, 75 years. Um, so it's interesting to sort of see how people relate to brands and how brands relate to people, right? And, and how we think about, um, you know, how sometimes, uh, 
you know, I, I'll never forget the story. I was at a party in New York many, many, many years ago and everybody was dressed to the hilt. And there was one guy, he was wearing a t-shirt and jeans. And um, my wife at the time said, she just looked over and she said, I bet he's the richest guy in the room. And we found out who he was. And sure enough, he, he was, he was uh, the richest guy in the room. And, you know, he was just over it. He couldn't really care about, he, he knew where he felt, where he fell hierarchically and everybody else did. So he didn't have to play the part, but most people do. And so these are how we use products to position ourselves and to create our story and curate um, our story and our lives um, around products and around brands. And uh, uh, most people do it. Uh, most people might understand, might not understand why they're doing it, but most people do it. Yeah. I mean, there's a, and maybe you go through this with the people that you work with or the brands, but using your, you know, cocktail party as an example, the thing that you show up with, right, which ultimately cannabis brands would like you to do, right, they would like you to represent their product and bring it to your friends. Um, there's a conscious or subconscious decision on, on what it is that you're bringing, right? Similar to bringing a bottle of wine or some hors d'oeuvres. There's a, there's a message in there, whether you want there to be or not, it exists, right? Um, and I think that's a good thought exercise for someone to think about who is the person that is going to relate to your brand that wants to wear it on their shirt, essentially, and, and bring it to their friends, right? I think that is, is a helpful way to think about it. Absolutely. And that goes, that totally goes from what, you know, what you just said, you know, on their shirt or their hoodie, let's call it cookies, or to a can. Let's call it can, you know, like what better billboard to have four or five people sessioning, you know, over over the course of dinner or throughout a sunny day with their preferred, um, you know, it's like a Heineken bottle or, or whatever your craft beer is or or even a Budweiser or a, pa a Pabst Blue Blue Ribbon. Right. It, you go through go through those brands I just mentioned. It's almost like you could see the people that are holding those cans um, that yeah. are the billboards for that brand. So. Yeah, it's it's all the way through from from the packaging all the way through to you know the packaging, right? Whether it's apparel yeah. or literally. I love the messaging. I, I love this is one of my favorite branding things that has happened is that Coors Light has a, a very successful marketing campaign based on the temperature of their beer, right? Like that's we have the coldest beer. They actually don't have any control over the temperature of the beer. It it's completely upon the person to you know, put it in the fridge or not, but it's amazing how they've been able to do that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's so many great campaigns that, uh, again, as I said, you know, is it truth or, or is it perception? Um, it's, uh, you know, people believe what they want to believe. And, and sometimes people just totally miss the, uh, you know, miss the mark. And quite frankly, um, you know, one of the one of the conversations I love, and because we're we're talking about this form factor in particular, beverages, right? So, if you take one data point and you say beverage is the fastest form factor in cannabis, fastest growing form factor in cannabis, you might say, "Hmm, I got to get into that industry." Well, let's take the second fact uh, or data point, which is it only represents one percent of the market. Okay, wow. All right, 
That's a wake up call, right? And then you layer on other facts and you start to say, hey, is this really the business I want to be in? Or is this a long-term business? Am I here and I need to stake my claim and grow over time? Um, it's not a quick win, which many folks who are either in cannabis or coming into cannabis want it to be. So, you know, I, I just think there's a lot of things to think about. Um, you know, I'll come full circle to something you said earlier, which is, uh, you know, lots of people want to start cannabis brands and, you know, lots of people have started cannabis brands. You know, the question I get asked is, if you know about cannabis brands so much, where's your cannabis brand and how come you don't have one? And you know what my answer is? I've got 10 cannabis brands in my back pocket that will kill most other cannabis brands out there. But guess what? I know that a cannabis brand is not just a cannabis brand. You know, it's quality product, it's sales and distribution, it's all the operations that go behind it. It's, you know, fulfilling all the promises you've made. It's making a profit, it's paying your employees, it's taking care of, uh, you know, the environment in the way that it should be. It's being conscious about what you're doing and it's about the love of the plant. And to do that in the right way, you not only have to be so smart, you also have to be so lucky. And in the environment that we're in right now, that's really hard. So, um, so do I have brands? Yes. If anybody wants to come license some for me that's already in, in the industry, let's talk. But I know the reality of not only creating a brand, but, but maintaining a brand and building a brand and building a profitable brand. And that's really hard, plain and simple. And then it's extra hard in the cannabis industry. Yeah, everything is extra hard. And it is, it's like having a child, right? It's not, it's a, it, it's going to live. Well, I mean, hopefully it's, it's, it's a long thing, but you, once you put it into the world, it's now your responsibility, I guess, until you, maybe you sell it. But um, the, the easy part is making the decision to do it. The hard part is is going going through all of the pain and suffering, like writing a book, which you uh, say you're writing. We should probably wrap up. I could talk all day about this, and I think we're already probably a little long winded. Yeah, uh, you know it's funny. Let me. Well, if if we can, we could wrap up on this one thought, which is um, when I wrote my book. Well, when I decided to write the book, I thought, great, I would write the book. And when I was finished with the book, I thought, wow. I'm finished with the book. But what I didn't realize is that once I'm finished with the book, that was only the starting line. Then I had to go find a publisher. Then I had to go sell the book. Then I had to go market the book. Then I had to go on a book tour. You know, then I had to go on a speaking tour. Um, you know, and now year and a half later, two years out, you know, the book is like, okay, where's your next book? What are you doing next? So, um, so to, to finish that thought is, um, be really mindful about what you want to create. Understand that when you finally create it, you're only at the starting point and that you've given it a life and now you need to nourish it and you need to move it forward. You know, it's funny too, when I do brand licensing deals in the cannabis space, people want to cut that deal so badly and they want to go back to their investors and say, we cut a deal with another company and so on and so forth. And I always say to them, cutting the deal is the wedding. It's the marriage you need to think about. It's the long-term 
you know, it, it, it's not the acquisition, it's the maintenance. And so that's really important for people to think about. It's uh, people just kind of miss that. It's not here, it's here, you know, oops, here. <laughs> so yeah, it's important. But um, I had a great time chatting today. I, I hope uh, it was helpful. I hope people, you know, like what they heard. And, and if they didn't, um, it's food for thought too, right? Yeah, no, it's been great chatting. Like I said, I could talk about branding all day long. We we do mostly advertising is our is our business that we work in and in, in the cannabis space. You know, we help cannabis brands have you know a seat at the grown up table and, and use the same tools and have access to the same publishers as companies like you know Pepsi and Coke. Um, but you know, there's there's a, there is not enough emphasis on brand building in the space, and I, and I understand why people are a little short on time and funds and that's that's something that gets neglected um and people want to go right to advertising and we always try to tell i tell people that you know advertising is not a marketing plan right it, it, like you need to have a story you need to have some messaging it's not just about 30 percent off buy one get one that's that's not how you build brand equity right and it will never this is always true i'm sure you've heard this you know it will never be cheaper to start building your brand than it is today, right? So, yeah, it's um, true. And I think strategy comes first. You know, it's like you you could you know advertising in a weird way is it's a tactic. You you need to is. know who you're advertising to and and um, and be smart about that and readjust if it's wrong. It's not it's it's cyclic, right? It's not just hey we advertise what's going on. Well, you advertise, you analyze. And and you you re, you pivot if if need be and and so it's a never ending process um, but but that's what it is to engage with your customers and and understand who's buying your products and why they're important to them. Yep. Well, um, David, how can people reach you if they want to connect with you? Maybe get some consulting or read your book. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Yeah, best place to reach me is david at brandingbud.com. Um, my website is brandingbud.com, and you could find about found, find out all about our services there, our consulting services. Um, and if you're interested in purchasing the book, you can do it on Amazon. It's Branding Bud, the Commercialization of Cannabis. And again, come come check out my website, brandingbud.com. I call it the best kept secret in cannabis. So uh, so come check it out and. Uh, and and learn something hopefully well hopefully it's a little less secret today um <laughs> thanks for coming on cannabis marketing live with me again i'm jake litke the ceo at media gel we do marketing for cannabis companies david does branding you need both of those things not just one of them um reach out to david if he can be helpful and thank you for your time thank you thanks jake <laughs>